Hello and welcome to Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast, a podcast to inspire you about outdoor travel and activities in the UK and across the world. I'm Joe, and you can email me with your thoughts or questions on live at cicerone.co.uk. Our guest this week is the legendary Nicky Spinks, one of the UK's most accomplished fell, mountain and ultra runners. She's been at the top of the ultra scene for years. Nikki is probably most famous for her records and FKTs of the classic UK fell running rounds of the Bob Graham, Paddy Buckley and Charlie Ramsey rounds. She's also popularised the frankly astonishing practice of completing double rounds, 200 kilometre long mountain adventures lasting a couple of days. This summer, Nikki reclaimed her Lakeland 24-hour record and then went on to come third in the infamous Tour de Géants race in the Italian Alps. On top of all that, Nikki's one of the kindest and friendliest runners out there, an elite runner that, like us, just loves spending time in the mountains. So here's my interview with Nikki talking about her amazing performance at Tour de Géant. What is the TDG then? What is the Tour de Géant, Nikki? Yeah, the Tour de Géants, well, they call it 330 kilometres, but it's actually about 360. Really? Yeah. They've remeasured it this year, and I think they've called it 356 or something. And the altitude as well, the climb, I think they say, is 24,000 metres, but more most people get it to about 26 or 7. That almost paves the way for the Italian way of doing things. Um, oh, okay. So, yeah, I remember the first time I, well, the first year I did the race, 2019, I sort of, I looked at all of people's splits and I figured out that some of the distances between checkpoints couldn't be right because people were just taking way too long, like five hours to do 10K or something. So I worked it all out like that. Um, I was going to say not as anal as road running, where you yeah. you know every distance one kilometer, two kilometers, and all that. You wouldn't have that for three hundred and sixty kilometers, would you? you wouldn't. <laughs> Good way to go mad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Knowing how many you've really got to go. Um, like, yeah, ultra running is all about time. But anyway, yeah, this Tour de Giants and it's round the Aosta Valley. In so it starts at Cormier and goes round the southern loop, um, and then round over the top and back um and I hadn't apart from the UTMB I'd not really been in the area at all mm. um yeah Tour de Monte Rosa nips into the top bit yeah Gressonet so I'd been in bits of it but not around the whole lot and I think in 2019 I just fell in love with it really but obviously it was the first time I did it and hadn't been before so it was like, I want to go back to learn more about it. And my big plan was to go in the summer and do it as a, a like a hiking route and stay at all these wonderful huts that they have up in the mountains. Um, but that didn't happen. So this year when I went back, I was winging it. I didn't even know I was going till a week before. Oh, really? Well, the Italian rules in August were that you had to self-isolate when you got there. Yeah. I couldn't do that. Um, so I wasn't going until they dropped that and the, they only dropped that on the 30th of August. So the race was on the, I think I went out on the 9th or something. Okay. So it was all very, like, chuck a load of stuff. I, I drove in the end as well. I ditched my flights because of the COVID and, and just because I didn't know if I was going or not. So it's just easier to chuck everything in the van. I think if you did that um, on their trips to the Alps this year to be a little bit more in control of their own personal destiny um, rather than flights and things like that, sort of 
mm. getting getting locked down. So this was the second time um, round at round at the race. What I mean, it it sounds, um, I guess, amazing to sort of put yourself through um, uh, a couple of two hundred mile races. That sounds amazing to me, anyway. Um, so that first time in twenty nineteen, did you immediately want to come back to the race um, after having uh, done it then? Yeah, it was to see more of it and to do better um yeah because i i did anything wrong but the first day you go up to 3200 meters three times and it was very snowy and icy and um i think that really affected everybody's lungs because it wasn't just me that had this hacking cough but um yeah and i wanted to go back and just i think look after myself better in the first few days so that I would feel better towards the end. Um, whether that worked or not, yeah, it, it did work. Actually, it did work. So, but I think it was also it's just the whole atmosphere, the, the marshals in the tents and the marshals in the huts, and the whole organisation. It's really low key, which I, I love that. I love that about the uh, Ultra Tour Monterosa. Some of it's, you know, like the website's a bit clunky and it takes you ages to find stuff. But I think in a way that if you do find everything, it's almost like you've put the effort in, you put more effort in. They're not giving it you on a plate. They're just, you know, you don't get shepherded round everywhere and told yeah. exactly what to do. You have to sort of find it all out. Well done for finding the secret FAQs page on the website. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, I mean, this kind of special nature of, it, of the people and the, the huts, and um, uh, the other runners and volunteers is that do you, have you not found there's that that sort of magic in in other races to that extent? Yeah, I think like the more the low key ones. There's um, yeah. I'm probably going to say it wrong, but Le Chapel Bell that's down. Oh. Yeah, um, that's the same. Very low key. Grand Ray Pyrenees and mm. yeah, Monte Rosa. So I think. I, I signed up for the UTMB years ago because it's the one to do and everything, but I just wasn't that impressed with, it just wasn't for me. I felt like I was running in a crowd of people like in the London marathon rather than running in the mountains, which is what I go and do these things for. I mean, obviously I'm in a race, but I don't want to be elbowed out the way. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And it can, it can be quite rough for the first few hundred meters at UTMB. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose, you know, the organisers, it's not their fault. It's, you know, one race is for one and one is for the other. The UTMB are fantastic at managing all those people. Um, Mm -hmm. And they can't do it without all the rules because people just, yeah, they're not very good at reading instructions or doing what they're told. So, um, so yeah, if you've got a lot of people, you need to manage them with uh, strict rules. Tour de Géon's a, it's a it's a big and quite well it's a big and famous race but as you're saying it has this lower key vibe and i think it's probably really easy for a lot of trail and ultra runners and uh fell runners to forget about the fact that there are other races uh out there there's you know there's hundreds of races uh mm-hmm. in the alps in fact there's dozens of you know dozens of hundred milers and 200 milers around in the alps but um for some reason we only we only think about um things like utmb yeah yeah and 
I, I don't know. I think it's good that, and I, I think unfortunately they need to all pick the same same time of year. Yeah. And I think maybe because um, I know Lizzie Hawker when she was setting up Monte Rosa, she could only have that weekend because the weekend after was the Tour de Giants, and I think the weekend before is the UTMB. So if <laughs> you know they struggle if they're going to be in the Alps, fitting it round all the, the other races that are already there. And then, of course, there's the snow and the sheep, I think, and the um, other sort of you know, things that go up. Because I think in summer, obviously, it's it's really big, it's busy hiking. And in winter, it's sna- it's skiing. So, um, yeah, all these races seem to be August. <laughs> so yeah. If you want a 100 miler, there are a lot in the Alps, but they'll all be in August, probably. Yeah, yeah, got it. So TDG, twice as far as uh, uh, UTMB. Um, and any other kind of 100-miler out there. Is it twice as hard? I think it depends how you take it because the cutoff is really quite reasonable. You could walk it with little sleep. Okay. Um, because you get from Sunday afternoon, morning when we set off, till the following Saturday, um, seven, six days. Um, yeah. Because I... Uh, yeah, I haven't really worked it out, but I know people like Mark Townsend, um, people have walked it and said it was sort of not comfortable because you do end up cutting down <laughs> on your sleep more than what I do. I finished yeah. on Thursday afternoon, so with three hours sleep. Um, okay. So if you want more sleep, you're going to have to go for longer, obviously. So I think in the way that the UTMB actually, the UTMB is 100 miles, but for 46 hours, which is quite tight. You know, you've got to be, you've got to keep going. You can't, there might be more checkpoints, but you can't stop at them. So Yeah, and TDG has um, life bases, is it? Is that what they're called? Yeah, about, I think there's six proper ones where you get your bag. Um, and it's the same bag, which has its pluses and minuses. So it follows you around and it's not huge. Um, well, not okay. not as huge as you'd like it. Yeah. But, so it takes quite a lot of packing to put all, because it's everything that you need. But the food that they provide is really good, but you still need everything that you might need. Um, and you're allowed to sleep at the life bases. And before COVID, you were allowed to sleep at the mountain huts, but they it was more restricted this year. But um yeah. yeah. So, so the 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 bag that follows you around, hopefully, it always gets to the to the next mm. life base before before you do. Um, but does it sort of does that allow you to be able to do it without a crew and sort of extra help? Yeah. So in 2019, I had Paul Turney supporting me, and he had an extra bag. But actually, I think maybe because there was two bags, it just all got very complicated. Um, because I could take more stuff so I did and then in 2021 this year I I was self-supported Paul was out there but he was running Um, Mm. so yeah I was I just went self-supported and and actually I was far more organized although I did have I knew about the race before in the, the first year I did it Paul was telling me lots of things about the the route that was coming up which was very helpful so it could get me prepared um so I was taking the right things when I left the checkpoint but this year I was just a lot more organized and then Paul's girlfriend Sarah was there and she did help me on a couple of occasions when she could double back after seeing Paul 
yeah. it is nice to have somebody there, especially towards the latter stages where your brain's really fuzzy. You can start looking at your watch and stuff and you just don't really know where you are, or what you've got coming up or anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've got lots of questions that are stemming from, from what you're saying. Um, the, the first one I want to ask about is about how helpful it was knowing that there's, there is somebody like Paul or somebody that you know um, also out there going through the same thing as you are. Does that, was, was that at all helpful or, or not, not, not really that relevant? Yeah, knowing, yeah, because I was asking Sarah what, how Paul was getting on um, because actually he was sleeping, he's done it a few times and he's always slept a lot more than me. When I slept for three hours last time, he was like, I can't believe you just did that. And I was like, well, why would you sleep for four if you could sleep for one? <laughs> yeah. um, you don't know. You don't. I mean, you can't, I don't know how long you could go on for sleeping for one hour a night. It, yeah, but that's that was just the way I approached it. And he approached it for like much more like that this time. And so yeah. he was actually only sleeping, I think he was sleeping for 20 minutes or 20 minutes, but more often. So there's lots and lots of different strategies you can sort of try with the sleep thing. Because, of course, you can't just sleep when it's dark because you're not in a life base. Yeah. You have to plan a bit. So you might be trying to sleep when actually you don't really want to sleep. Do most people go into the race with a with a sleeping plan and then they try to keep to it or they decide to immediately abandon it? Because, yeah, I can imagine that you, you say, OK, I'm, I think maybe my plan is going to be to sleep two hours a night. And um, you get to the middle of the first night and, you know, try and get your head down and presumably just not going to switch off. Um, so do you have to sort of make it up as you go along, uh, uh, in effect? You do slightly, yes. Whatever, Whichever you set off doing, because you can, some of the life bases are better for sleeping at than others. And like you say, sometimes you can just lie down and you're not you're not sleepy so I just get back up then I think there's no point um although this time I still lay there for an hour on one of them because my feet my feet were swelling up and they were really they just needed I needed to sit off my feet my feet yeah. needed a rest more than I did so I I sort of lay there and, and um I was sorting out my rucksack but I, actually I was only lay there because it was too noisy and stuff to sleep but I need. I knew if I got up, my feet were weren't going to last the rest of the race. They needed to dry out and and recover a bit. So I suppose yeah. And then because I did that, when it got to pool, that night was really rough. That was half nine at night, and I had intended to sleep for an hour, and I didn't. And I got back up at half ten and set off, and I was all over the place. I couldn't. There was a row of runners in front of me and I just, they all turned right and I just carried on going and then was like, where is everybody off? <laughs> right over the other side of the hillside. And I mean, it's quite well marked. You don't, you don't go wrong until, yeah. And then, so then I thought, right, I need to find somebody to run with and then we can keep each other awake. And it took me a while because these other runners were, they were the half tour that had set off. So they weren't my pace at all. They were faster than me. Uh, okay. But they were stopping at the checkpoints way more than I was. So it was really odd that they kept passing me, but I couldn't latch onto them because they were too fast. Yeah, that's so confusing when that happens. <laughs> Eventually, I found one man that would let me run with him. Um, he was looking for somebody as well because he was 
it was his first ultra and we were going into their first night and he didn't want to be on his own which is yeah it's a good plan not to be on your own overnight we were going up and over this high pass as well and and um he was a german but living in america and we stuck together the whole night but come about four or five o'clock in the morning, God, we were all over the place again. We were just, we were actually walking down this track and we were bumping into each other really? because we were like half asleep. Yeah. And we sat down and I thought, this is wrong. This is a slightly downhill track and we're walking and sitting. This is, I should be running this <laughs> or sleeping so that when I wake up, I want to run it. We'll be very, very, this is the worst you know this is the worst way to lose time by ambling down a track where you should be going a lot faster it should be a lot more efficient so we got to the next checkpoint and I've never done this before it was a really busy checkpoint I saw people lying down on the floor and I just went I'm going to lie down on the floor for 10 minutes I just went to sleep and I woke up and he was still asleep and then I was like it's seven o'clock and it's daylight and I want to get going and I might be able to do a hundred hours and I sort of prodded him a bit <laughs> and he shook it his oh. I was like oh I don't know this man shall I just leave him I thought no no we said we were going to stick together and I don't want to leave him so I like shook him a bit more I thought if he if he really argues now I'll just go yeah. but no he, he woke up and he wanted to go too so so that was a different change of yeah, 10 minutes. I usually find 10 minutes is enough. Yeah. My um, my body clock must have said that as well because I didn't set an alarm, which, you know, I could have been there for hours, only it was really, really noisy again. But when you do need the sleep, you can sleep throughout anything, can't you? Mm. But 10 minutes was all it took to give you a good revival. Yeah. It's cool. Very cool. <laughs> And the daylight, I think daylight makes a big difference. Yeah. This is the bit I'm, I mean, personally most fascinated by is the, the fuzzy brain uh, part of it. Um, the long routes and runs that I've done in the past, I've not personally had any hallucinations, but um, what's tended to happen with me is um, a bit of a weird sort of subconscious shift, I suppose, where I kind of a bit more like dreaming, but while being awake and quite strange things going on um, mentally, whilst not actually seeing them through hallucinations. So that's the thing that's really put me off wanting to do something longer, like uh, Tour de Géant. But is that part of the fun of it, maybe? Uh, or does that go away after a while? Or do you just learn to embrace that weirdness? I think we all get different things because I've never seen hallucinations either. But actually, Berhard was seeing all the trees were covered in Christmas decorations, and that's what he was. That's why he was bumping into me because he was looking about like this, and I'm like, (laughs) "What earth are you looking at?" And he's like, "It's decorations." It's like, "No, there isn't any decorations. (laughs) These are just pine trees." Wow. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I've never I've never got that my sort of fuzziness is more uh yeah I think it's more I just go into myself a little bit and stumble along and maybe because I'm I'm really really focused on going as fast as I can in the best way as possible so that that's when I got annoyed with myself because I knew I knew I needed to do something to sort that out and I think also if you if you did it you'd find out what sleep you could manage on so that you didn't feel like that 
yeah I think that's the thing you've always got to be aware of the fact right how bad am I getting what do I do do I need to sleep and then that will sort this out and then you wake up and it is incredible that the body just thinks oh fine yeah we've had some sleep and they don't it doesn't go well we haven't had eight hours we've just had 10 minutes yeah I think you just hit upon something there Nikki was where you said that you're mostly concentrate on trying to I guess get the best out of yourself and concentrate on going as fast as you can at, at any moment in time and maybe that's where the where the difference is you're you're focusing in on that present mm. moment um um rather than letting maybe as I've done letting my mind drift off to all sorts of strange strange places and then uh, half an hour or three hours later realize that you're sort of, sort of bumbling along when um when actually you should be running um for example yeah yeah because Berhard with it being his first ultra as well he was he said to me thank you at the end for, for pushing him because he did a lot better than what he would have done without me because I was pushing me as well because <laughs> um, he said you know he said the same he would probably have he did take quite a few photos, but he'd have taken more photos and had a lot longer at the checkpoints and things like that. But um, I think you could still enjoy it, but you've, you do feel like you've, you've got the most out of yourself when you do a good time. I don't like finishing a race and think, Oh, I could have pushed myself a bit harder. I do think if you can, if you can drink five pints after anything, you've had, you haven't tried hard enough. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right. Although, you know, even after finishing the Tour de Giants, I was, I had, think I had two pints and I was still like, because I was on such a massive high being third woman. I never, I never imagined in a month of Sundays I would get anywhere near. I was hoping for top 10 being 11th last year. Um, so yeah I think that's what was keeping me going a lot of the time the first time I got told where I was I was sixth and and then fourth somehow and then third and as soon as I was third that was it the, that was it I was just pushing but the trouble is knowing where you are I always find it is it's an advantage not an advantage but the disadvantage is you stop looking after yourself because you get so focused on trying to keep going and you can only keep going pushing yourself for that hard for maybe five or six hours and then if you haven't looked after yourself your body's just gonna go stop <laughs> crash yeah absolutely well well let's just say um I mean, congratulations on that third place that's amazing and it's also really cool to you know to exceed your expectations mm-hmm. um like that i mean Tour de Géant was a very competitive race so how was that competition against the other other women in the race and did you know when you were passing people and when there were people up ahead and um because you know, it's often dark out and there's um, mm. a field spread out and you get the sleep so I don't I think even the winners have to sleep yeah so you can go through a checkpoint and overtake somebody because they're asleep, but then, you know, they then overtake you when you're asleep. So, <laughs> again, you know, being told where you are early in the race is a bit, yeah, it doesn't really make a lot of difference because obviously yeah. at some point you're going to sleep and you don't know how long everybody else is going to sleep for. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I think... Um, 
And finding out where I was, I, I did promise myself I didn't really want to know early on because I wanted just to look after myself and not get too competitive and start looking about, you know, where are the people and stuff. But I I was climbing really quite well. My my idea was to stay within myself and then get to Tuesday, from Sunday to Tuesday, feeling better than I did last time because I felt on Tuesday last time I, I felt a wreck and I took most of Tuesday off I said I said to Paul I said, I'm just gonna have to have Tuesday off I'm just gonna I hadn't eaten enough and I'd maybe push myself but my lungs that it felt like I'd got cut in half I think it was mm-hmm. the cold air I just couldn't breathe in deep, deep breathing and I didn't think I was going to be able to finish the race until I sorted that out and just taking it easy for a day uh, stopping in the checkpoints eating as much food as what I could see at these checkpoints um, I did recover but I didn't want to do that again so I wanted to sort of manage myself better from the start eat more proper food and so I was running along and I was thinking these guys are usually the guys that I don't catch American brothers and yeah just guys that I don't usually sort of see in a I wouldn't expect to see so I thought I must be going a bit faster than what I think I am and also there wasn't many people you could tell by you know you're further up the field because the it's more spread out but some got a marshal did tell me and I think he said I was 10th and I was like oh I don't want to know don't want to know don't tell me he's like why why I said oh it's too early to know (laughs) this was only Monday morning or something so how many days did it take you overall then or how many hours I should say it was 101 hours yeah just over so that's why I was pushing probably early on because I thought I I wanted the magic 100 hours um and yeah, I think we just went, did 101 and maybe five minutes or something. But I did 106 last time. Oh, okay. I came out of sleep, so I was quite a bit slower somewhere. And actually, this time I spent longer in the checkpoints because I was re- I realised that without Paul sorting my kit out, I couldn't just go in, chuck, you know, give him the stuff, ask him to like charge up my batteries and stuff, and then go for a sleep. I needed yeah. to store all my stuff out when I got into the checkpoint. I mean, I don't have a lot of stuff, but you need to you need to charge your phone up because they 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 want to get hold of you. And um, this year, I also wanted to charge my watch packed up on me last year, so I was charging that up this year. You need to set your own alarm to wake yourself up, things like that. And I always pack my rucksack when I got into the checkpoint before I went to sleep, so that I could just wake up and go. Because you know, you wake up and you're a bit fuzzy. I didn't. I wanted to yeah and also um, if I'm asleep I'll be thinking oh I need to remember to put that in my rucksack and that in my rucksack so if I know my rucksack's ready to go then I'm I'm more likely to go to sleep but then you know so all that was taking if I wanted to sleep for an hour I think I was using up half an hour before and half an hour afterwards in just sorting myself out so yeah I spent longer in the checkpoints this time I think but that was because I was managing myself and I obviously managed myself okay really Cicerone have two guidebooks that cover the Tour de Géant route. The first is Andy Hodge's book to the Giant's Trail, and the second is Gillian Price's Walking and Trekking in the Grand Paradiso. If you'd like to run, walk or fast pack the Tour de Géant route, then these are the guides to give you the information to have an amazing time on the trail. Are there sort of key bits of kit that really did help make make things go more smoothly or that kind of slightly unusual things that you, you know, really couldn't have done without 
or is it just just your normal mountain trail running stuff and and that's it yeah i suppose you sort of rely on is actually this this watch this fenex watch that i had that's mm. this is yeah it's brilliant it's the um so last year the battery did eventually give out but the sun battery does last longer so i didn't have i didn't take a charger but but that one i was charging it up but i found i could put the charger on my wrist and actually have the alarm as well and it had one of those silent alarms i was probably the only person in the hall using a silent alarm everybody else's phones went off when they wanted to get uh. up but anyway, I put that on and that was really good being able to charge the watch while wearing the watch, while using the alarm. And then also because I set it up, well, with a minimal amount of stuff, but it was giving me the altitude. And that's really because I hadn't been able to get out and acclimatise. I wanted to know when I was getting to 2,200 metres or whatever, so that if it was if my breathing was going and if. I was feeling shitty and I could look at my watch and go, oh, well, you're at 2,600 metres. So, and it was actually, it was only ever 100 metres out, which I thought was good. Um, and it's also really good if you're climbing to know, you know, if you're going to a 3,200 metre climb, to know that you've got that much meterage to do. You know, you start off and you're at 600 and you're like, okay, this is a long <laughs> climb. <laughs> wow, that's huge. Yeah. And poles. I'm a big believer in poles now. I use them all the time. I'm guessing everybody uses poles for Tour de Géo. Yeah. Yeah, they do, yeah. But I think the British aren't as pole mad as the Europeans are. Mm. I did do my first few hundreds without poles, and I was like, they, everyone was like, where are your poles? Have you lost them? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm British. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So I'm... I'm cu- I'm curious about these long long races, and you've done a couple of other particularly long things, like um, your your double rounds and uh, and Barclay and things like that. Maybe we'll we'll come on to that. But what is it about those really long things that you particularly enjoy, as opposed to um, uh, I don't know, like a hundred kilometers on uh, one of the uh, the rounds in the UK, or even shorter races, fifty miles or marathons bell races what is it about these really long things that you that you think are are fantastic i think it's the whole looking after yourself and just it's more like a holiday in a way being on the mountains for me you know i love spending hours and hours on a mountain um and it's the whole management of myself i mean i don't enjoy the whole five days or uh, monday tuesday wednesday four days I mean, there's a fair bit of that. I'm swearing at myself and my feet. And my feet were so sore again. I don't think that different shoes, different socks, I don't think any of that would have made any difference. You know, they get really hot. They swell up. We got soaked. They got wet. They got wet through. They went all crinkly. I didn't actually get any blisters. Um, they're just really, really sore. So you spend, so the last sort of day is, fairly painfully feet sore but or something sore generally but I don't know I think it's just you know you're doing it you know you're looking after yourself and I I don't know I never run out of anything to think about people say what do you think about all that time (laughs) what do you think about what you're going to eat or the views or the person you've just you're talking to or yeah yeah or your feet (laughs) (laughs) no it's um I, I, I 
but I, I also I do like a twenty mile fell race. Um, yeah. So I mean, I like a decent climb. I think if I'm looking at a race in the UK, as soon as it sort of doesn't have much climb per mile, I know it's going to be a harder one for me because I'm not a, a sort of flatter trail runner person, and I find slightly annoying that all the nice road runners with their the heels that kick up to their bums still they just come running past me like they're enjoying this flat piece of road and i'm just feeling like where's the hill where's the hill <laughs> damn them and their perfect strides <laughs> the cadence <laughs> that's the first thing i turn off on my watch oh yeah don't tell me how rubbish my cadence is <laughs> yeah yeah so what are the worst things about it what makes you think well, we're not maybe not any more of that sort of thing yeah the sore feet afterwards is pretty painful for days yeah how is it recovering from there yeah so your sleep's all over the place you you tend to sleep for two hours solid and then wake up starving okay. um <laughs> So, I mean, eating eating whatever you want, whenever you want is great for a bit. But even then you get a bit sick of it, you get sick of being too hungry. And also you get a sore mouth from eating. But I think your feet, my feet don't actually love ultras. They don't like getting hot. Usually after a race, I elevate them. I'll sleep with them on a couple of pillows to try and, because they swell up like mad. But this year I actually, as well as doing that, I've, I'd taken an esky out, an ice cooler, and I had it by the side of my bed. And when I woke up in the night with my feet tingling and it's like, they really feel like they're going to burst out of the skin. I just heave them over the side of the bed and slap them in this bucket of water. And although I didn't really want to do it, as soon as they were in the cold water, they just, it was just like, oh yeah. And I just sort of lay there for about 10 minutes until they were way too cold. And then I toweled them off and went back to sleep. But that was a good feet management afterwards this time. Because last year they just kept me awake, just throbbing and itching. And yeah, I mean, I think the Italians say I should drink more, but I was drinking quite a lot. I think it's the altitude as well that, you know, I wasn't acclimatized. So you, your hands tend to swell up at altitude as well, don't they? So but you can, you know, you can yeah. move those a lot better and you can keep them up, whereas your feet, everything's still like flowing down to the bottom of your feet staying there um yeah there's not many bad things about actually doing the tour de Gions. there's very little road in it as well i think there's probably more road in the utmb than there is in the tour de Gions. Ah, okay because there's long road sections in the utmb that i think oh no i don't want to do that again they really hurt <laughs> yeah they hurt yeah and although it's really hot in the valleys, like, well, really hot, say 20 to 25, mm. the weather on the UTMB is usually really, it's nice because you're up high quite a lot. So it's cooler for me, which, because I don't like it. I don't do well in the heat. Yeah. Were there things that you did specifically in your training for preparation for Tour de Géant, or was it just kind of your, your normal mountain training that you would do otherwise? Anything that you sort of adapted for, for TDG? Well, usually I would do more ascent, but this year I was already doing the ladies' Lake District 24-hour record in August. Ah, uh, yes. So that was just perfect, both training, really. So, yeah, I, I was doing back-to-back big days in the Lake District and in Scotland when I could get there. So trying to get, say, 
three, four thousand metres in a day, which is quite hard in the UK. Doing the second day, I think that's it's important to do the second day, the day that you don't really want to do because you're tired is is the important sort of day. We could well be talking about your ladies' 24-hour record uh, as the subject of this, you know, such as that achievement. But that must have been good preparation for Tour de Géant, do you think? Yeah, yeah, it was. I was very worried, though, that I hadn't recovered when I went out to the Tour de Géant because it was only four weeks. And the last time I did the Ladies' Lake District record in 2011, it took me six months to really recover. I went to do the Grand Ray Pyrenees six weeks later and I, it was shocking. I was really, really tired. So I did nothing this time, really, between the two, between the Lake District record and the Tour de Géants. And that's the other reason why I didn't want to be competitive until I didn't want to know what other people were doing, because for me, it was just about getting around the Tour de Géants, um, especially as just with COVID, getting out there was just such a pain. Yeah. You know, you just felt lucky to be on the start line and just you just wanted to not ruin yourself and finish it do you know do the full course and because it had been such an effort to even get there that you know you wanted to appreciate the whole experience so yeah I was probably quite you know I had no expectations at the Tour de Géants which again is probably a good thing when you set off on a race like that. So when when you say um, between the 24-hour record and TDG you did uh, um pretty much nothing what does that actually mean pretty much nothing or <laughs> what are the actual numbers involved there no we have a series of races in the dark peak I would have gone and done those they're like six miles on on the fells um and then I think just out with the dogs basically yeah but no nothing that I would say is training but the legs felt yeah obviously pretty tired but I think I just I did just bounce. It was the right amount of time from I, ha, I worked really hard for the ladies like district record because I knew it was right at the top of my limit. I'm not. Well, I'm 10 years older than I was and I, I knew what I was doing in 2011 and I couldn't really better that being 10 years older and in COVID. So but you did. Well, I did. Yeah, I did. Be, yeah, I did a lot of speed work and a lot of hills. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, well done on that one too, Nikki. That's uh, that's fantastic. You mentioned uh, right at the start that you planned on going to the Aosta Valley where TDG is and uh, and maybe hiking it or or something like that. Is that something that you still would like to do? And do you want to go there for some more casual running and walking? Yeah. So I got the two books, and I also while I was there, I thought my husband would love this. The huts are amazing. They're just you don't expect to see a hut on top of a mountain where there isn't any vehicular access so you open the door and there's this little wooden hut with benches and a fire and men cooking ravioli and stuff and yeah and bunk beds and it's just lovely and it would be lovely to sort of be able to spend more time in them um, and look at the view and sort of so I'd love to go around and also to acclimatise, I'd love to go out, say, in July next year and, and go around, if not all of the route. And that's why I got the book, so that I could sort of follow it. Because it's amazing when you're racing, you don't sort of take it all in much. And then half of it's in the dark anyway. <laughs> yes. And there's one hut that was in the dark last year and it was in the thick fog this year. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think it's a bit of a shame, really, isn't it? it you know, such beautiful scenery that uh, it does feel during the race that, like it's a, a bit of a shame that you can't actually properly enjoy that view. Yeah, yeah. So you see pictures of other people, other runners that, at the same spot as you, but they're in daylight and you're like, whoa, there's all those mountains. Yeah. Views and stuff. But I got different views this time because I was I was six hours different most of the way because I made most of that up early on I think probably got time for one last question as to whether you've ever done park run before I have yeah I'm a well I was gonna say a big fan I can't be a big fan when I haven't even done 50 but um, (laughs) no news was my local one and yeah I was going down there well yeah maybe 30 times I've done it in five years I really love the sort of whole setup of the park runs. Dewsbury uh, is quite a quiet one. Um, we have well, we were getting sort of a hundred people, which is nice, but that's because there's a hill in it apparently, and you go up it four times. But it is—it's one of these really, really slight gradient ones that does drag on the fourth time round. But um, I've been—I did one in Guernsey, and I've done the Huddersfield one. But yeah, and I'd like to do the one up in Girvan. Apparently, there's one up there now because I'm that's that'll be sort of 20 minutes away from me when we move up there I love it and when I go I I, I love seeing all the uh, um well everybody going around with their push chairs and their dogs and everything and I I stay afterwards and sort of clap everybody around and see people in yeah it's a special atmosphere really isn't it yeah definitely a bit of a bit of a contrast to um 200 mile ultramarathons which have their own atmosphere too and uh, I've I've always found they make you appreciate how, um, at least for myself, how much of a slow runner uh, I am when you get overtaken by um, 11-year-old boys and uh, 9-year-old girls as you're wheezing round. That's, uh, that's the normal story for me. Yeah, or the man with the dog. <laughs> he's not getting dragged by the dog. He's just, he's just running with his dog. <laughs> oh. I hope that you enjoyed the latest episode of Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast. I'd love to know what you think, or if there's anything you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Please email live at cicerone.co.uk or leave a review on your podcast platform. You can follow or subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss new episodes, or you can sign up to our newsletter for all our latest news events and guidebooks. Visit cicerone.co.uk for details. Please come and join us on our social channels. We're on all the main ones at, at Cicerone Press, and we also have a Facebook group, Cicerone Connect, where you can meet and chat to other outdoor enthusiasts. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you soon.